Hi, this is Steve Nerlich, and this is Steve's PhD, Episode 10, Form Filling. As is by now well recorded, I am not doing a PhD in science, but in science education. So I'm not titering test tubes, tweaking trigonometry, or testing tenses. On the positive side, though, being a social science student means I can do a lot of my work in cafes and restaurants. Becoming the shadowy character in the corner, who, for the cost of a Diet Coke and a plate of fries, spends an enjoyable hour or more scouring journal articles, scribbling notes in margins, and occasionally bolting upright in a eureka moment of postgraduate insight. In the bathroom mirror, I was beginning to see hints of the long-term dietary impact of a regular intake of lipid-encrusted potato. But that's not why this episode is called form-filling. My PhD supervisor, although pleased that I did manage to publish an article, has also made it clear that if I want to be Dr. Nerlich, I need to get out there and do things. And by things, she means research. Real research. Real research means doing something that no one has done before, and unfortunately, I am not the first person to discover the joys of critically reviewing the literature in cafes and restaurants. Conducting research in the social sciences is not for the faint-hearted. If you have ever contemplated such a thing, I suggest you may want to go home and rethink your life. I want to go home and rethink my life. I am now faced with the daunting task of surveying Australian university students. This long-suffering demographic have been surveyed, profiled and focus-grouped to the point of becoming their own Truman Show. But finding yourself a space in this socio-demographic melting pot is challenging. Even though there are students out there who might fill in your survey, you still have to get your survey to them. I actually know someone who stood in a shopping mall approaching strangers to say, Hi, I'm a PhD student. Could you fill out my survey, please? While it would be nice to have a PhD... If I have to stand in a student cafeteria handing out surveys, I'll just stick to being Mr. Nerlich. Thanks very much. In any case, I really need a bigger sample size than I could hope to get from a cafeteria. So the 21st century option of conducting a survey online looks to be the better way. But again, putting your survey online is one thing, Getting students to answer it is quite another. Of course, there's email, but how are you going to get hold of a collection of current student email addresses? And if you just thought of something a bit dark and nefarious, remember, I have an ethics committee keeping an eye on me. So, in the social science game, just gaining access to your population of interest is no small matter. And even when you do gain that access, getting your population of interest to respond is also no small matter. 
if you've ever been rung up for a phone survey. You try to be nice, but you generally hang up, right? Phone surveyors talk maybe 6% of the people they approach into starting a survey, and they talk maybe 2% into finishing it. And that's if they're good at their job. This leads me to the first principle of survey design. Never assume that anyone who starts your survey will finish it, and be mindful that most people won't even start it. So if you want to maximise the number of people who will start your survey, make it short. And if you want to maximise the number of people who will finish your survey, make it short. And so to the second principle of survey design. Write a list of all the questions that you absolutely have to ask, then dump half of them and start trimming down what's left. This process can be guided by the third principle of survey design. Try answering the question yourself and then decide if you really care about that answer. If you don't, dump the question. The less questions you ask, the more answers you're going to get. A good survey starts with a series of filter questions. So, for example, are you a university student? No? Well, go away. I don't care about you. Did you study overseas? No? Well, I am first going to count you as a failure, but then go away. If you're still with me, you are now in my population of interest. So, are you studying science? No? Well, I don't care much about you, but welcome to my control group. These filter questions are quick and easy and extremely useful. You knock out a lot of people you don't want to know about, saving your time and theirs, and you also identify how much of the total population represent your population of interest. For example, how many students study overseas out of all the students that there are? Well, about 13%, according to some travel data. So, if my filter questions knock out 87% of the people who start, and just leave 13%, I can start feeling I've captured the right mix of people, and I can start talking about valid sample frames when it comes to writing up the results. It's kind of clever. Once you have narrowed down your population of interest, it then becomes a balancing act of how much information you can extract from someone before they get sick and tired of the survey, which won't take very long. There's some easy information to catch, like gender. Just tick a box. Age is also easy, although you should only ever ask for people to choose an age range. Again, you just offer a few tick boxes. Under 18 years, in case you've got a Doogie Hauser. Then 19 to 24 years, 25 to 35 years, and so on. This is a better way than asking for someone's exact age, since they'd have to reply manually, which is just a time-wasting effort. Also, and this is important, you risk breaching the privacy rules. Once you've identified a 28-year-old female who studied giant clams in Malaysia for six weeks, 
You have pretty much singled out the one possible person who could fit that description, even if you never ask for their name. You aren't really allowed to do that, and it's a level of detail you don't really need. So, to summarise, first you ask some filter questions, then you ask some demographic questions, then it really comes down to what your thesis is about. This is why not many people start a survey in the first year of their PhD, since at that stage you barely know what your thesis is, or you only think that you know what it is. Also, you don't want to go repeating research that someone else has already done, which is why it's best to spend a year or two reading journal articles in cafes and restaurants first. My thesis, at least what I think it is today, comes down to one question. Did you study overseas to access infrastructure and expertise that were not available to you in Australia, or were you mainly seeking a generic, mind-broadening travel experience for the purposes of personal growth? After two years of cafe and restaurant literature research, I am almost certain that most students will say it's the personal growth thing. It is kind of disappointing to learn that physics students aren't flocking to the Large Hadron Collider and instead are mainly taking a selfie in front of the Eiffel Tower. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Nonetheless, I do hold some hope, if I can get enough people to answer my survey, that I'll find that science, technology, engineering and math students might be a little more focused on access to specialised infrastructure But if not, finding out that STEM students want to be global citizens, just like everyone else, might not be such a bad thing. And anyway, this is just the undergraduates. Postgraduate PhD students doing STEM are a whole different story again. Stay tuned. Steve Nerlich, PhD Candidate.